According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here this morning for the purpose of growth. Join me, if you would, in uh, Luke chapter 11. That's not correct. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Typo on the very first slide. Isn't that terrible? Verses 1 through 59. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 59. I was going to say, we spent long enough in chapter 11. We're into chapter 12 now, as of last week. Episode 13 in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus Christ. Pretty uh, lengthy title and yet not lengthy enough. Jesus deals with hypocrisy, covetousness, worry, and alertness. Well, there's four topics. In actuality, we have a total of ten. Ten areas that we're going to evaluate breaking this down. This comes from the the outline Bible, which I thought to be pretty good in this instance. The uh, way that they broke down the chapter into the ten parts. uh, A decalogue of ten emphases. And so we're just going to take them one by one. Uh, Last week we looked at the element of hypocrisy. Uh, Today we'll look at the fear of the Lord uh, in verses four and five, as well as the emphasis on God's care in verses 6 and 7. So those are the first three emphases. And then emphases 4 through 10 will have to wait for uh, for future classes. By the way, uh, we have a break coming up because of the Schaefer Conference. No class next week. And, uh, and then because of the missionary trip to Ukraine, the two Wednesdays following are also. So it's a three-week break. Did you figure out what the... Are the ladies still going to pray and... Okay, so ladies have one week off for prayer. Two weeks after that, prayer will be back. And, yeah, good, because we need that prayer. <laughs> we absolutely need that prayer. Okay, everybody situated, ready to go, ready to pray, and all the rest of that. Gina's out here, that's super. We've expanded the nursery volunteers, I understand, so that's good. And the more volunteers, the uh, better it is for everybody. Appreciate that. All right, well, let's take a moment for silent prayer so that we can situate ourselves spiritually as well as physically. I think we're all physically seated at this point, but let's uh, spiritually situate our souls in humility to receive the Word implanted. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we thank You for... um, A faithful assembly, a faithful congregation that has the Word of God as their first priority. Uh, Thank you, Father, for these contractors we're meeting with and uh, the discussions for the building of the new building. And and, uh, some of these fellows, they've uh, they've built churches before and they've dealt with church committees before. And I don't know that they've ever seen uh, a church with the priorities quite like this one. And, And so I just thank you for that and I pray... As we continue to move forward, that uh, you would keep us uh, humble, keep our uh, objectives uh, consistent with your objectives, and never let us lose track of our first priority, that is our first love, the, the living and abiding Word of God. And Father, for this morning, we ask for a hedge of protection uh, around us, Father, to uh, protect us against those that would come in and do us harm. Father, uh, set aside distractions, internal and external, and allow us to concentrate completely, totally, upon the glory of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, episode 13. 
point one's already on the screen. The Outline Bible divides this chapter into a Decalogue of ten emphases. I appreciated their breakdown on it, so I stole it. I figure it's not copyrighted as long as it's uh, <laughs> as long as it's scripture. God owns the copyright, and uh, I'll I'll steal from anybody if they got good stuff that that communicates truth. I will make use of it. So the ten emphases is how we will uh, outline the chapter. With increased demonic opposition, Jesus launches his teaching ministry into high gear, and I find that to be noteworthy. The, the conflict ramps up, so his teaching ramps up, and he matches the hostility with an intensity of even more teaching. And uh, what a what a refreshing change of pace, especially compared to our own uh, generation, our own culture, where hostility and uh, difficulties might cause somebody to, you know, take it easy for a little while, maybe back down for a little bit. Not so in the case of our Savior. When the intensity of the uh, opposition ramped up, he ramped up his teaching schedule. And I appreciate that. We also note the tramps that came through uh, the myriads of tramps, that's the vocabulary involved for these people, that uh, are stepping all over one another. And we see it in chapter 12, verse 1, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. That's why I'm calling them tramps. That's what a tramp is, somebody that tramples something down. And not popular terminology anymore. In fact, I don't think I'm even allowed to say it anymore. But uh, I'm going to say it anyway, so there you go. And they're stepping all over one another. I actually have a license. I can, I can talk about tramps. My mother-in-law was a tramp, so I can. That was her maiden name. So we've got tramps in the family, and I'm permitted to talk about anything related to tramps. All right. So they were stepping on one another. So why were they, Why was he so popular? You know, was this a good thing? Did he have these hordes and hordes, these crowds? They were. Were they there on positive volition, devouring the Word of God and glorifying the Father for His gracious plan? No. None of that whatsoever. In fact, they were um, the, the mob mentality is useful to the adversary in a lot of different ways. And a lot of times, if the adversary wants to have his hand in something, one of the first things he'll do is he'll put a crowd in place. He'll put a mob in place because a mob can be manipulated and violence can be triggered. And uh, if the objective is to bring somebody down or to have somebody killed, uh, go ahead and set the stage for that. Lay the dry tinder out there. Get ready for the spark to hit it. And uh, and the thing's there. So the the huge numbers didn't excite him any. He wasn't all jazzed. He wasn't blinded by the, uh, the uh, issue. They were confused. See, sometimes numbers can be flattering and a pastor gets... His eyes off track because he's flattered by the big numbers and the big money and the crowds and whatever else. Uh, Jesus is not being hoodwinked by uh, these myriads that are all of a sudden showing up. They're not showing up for friendly reasons. Which took him immediately then into emphasis number one, hostility, uh, hypocrisy. Emphasis number one, hypocrisy from verses one through three. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We have to decide whether the first applies to disciples or refers to the message. In other words, is he speaking to his disciples first uh, before he addresses the myriads? Or is he speaking only to his disciples and the first subject he speaks to them on is hypocrisy? You know, So does the first go with disciples or does the first go with Hypocrisy. In other words, when he gets around to secondly of all, is he speaking now to the myriads 
Or does he continue to speak to the disciples? And secondly, he speaks to them about the uh, the next emphasis here, which is on the, the fear of the Lord. I think that's the better way to take that. I don't think he's giving these myriads the time of day. They're certainly welcome to eavesdrop. They're welcome to listen, uh, so long as they're not intruding on the ministry. But he is teaching his disciples. This is the final six months as he's headed to the cross. He's no longer preaching the the kingdom of heaven at hand. He's preparing his disciples for the kingdom of heaven rejected and his uh, his work of crucifixion on the cross so emphasis number one is on hypocrisy and he tells them to beware the leaven which is hypocrisy and the leaven we know from elsewhere is the teaching of the pharisees it's their influence it's their attitude and their attitude shows up in their teaching their attitude shows up in their conversations the attitude shows up in their uh in their lunch invitations when they get all snooty about whether the proper cleansing procedures are done and things like that the pharisaical mindset is what's in view, and it's a hypocritical mindset, and you have to be aware of it. And the reason why leaven is chosen for the metaphor is, the, is because the mindset of Phariseeism will spread like the dickens. It spreads like leaven. It does not stop spreading. When does leaven stop spreading? You know, when leaven saturates the entire loaf. And that's the attitude, the mindset of Phariseeism. Uh, you've got to cut it out. You've got to amputate it. You've got to, because it's like gangrene. And it is deadly when it's allowed to spread. So beware the leaven, which is hypocrisy. And some of these word studies are worthwhile. I think the prosecco is uh, important to look at. I think the hypocrisy, the hypocrisis, number 5272 is something you want to look at. Leaven, uh, just for its metaphorical sake, is worth looking at. But and we've taught it many, many times. You should be familiar. It's a picture of sin. It describes the nature of sin and the insidious nature of it as it spreads from one person to the next. Now, also recognize, as you read this, this is not a church-age text. The application we glean in our church setting is, at best, a secondary application. This this passage was not written for the church. It was not uh, spoken to the church when it was spoken it was spoken by Jesus Christ to Israel during their dispensation. However, we find it as a principle that we bring across to the church because we have so many church age passages that corroborate it, such as Romans 12, 9, 2 Corinthians 6, 6, 1 Timothy 1, 5, 2 Timothy 1, 5, James 3, 17, and 1 Peter 1, 22. So there are, there is no shortage of church age a validation of this warning against hypocrisy to where we can view a passage like this and accept it on a secondary basis for our own application. That was a question somebody had the other day. How do we know if it's a church age passage, whether or not we have a legitimate application or not? I mean, uh, the things of, of the Sabbath and circumcision and keeping the law and Passover. There's an awful lot that was written to Israel that we don't bring across into a New Testament application. So how come something like this, we, we say, well, we can make a secondary application? What would what tells us the difference? How do we know when to do one or when to do the other? See, well, the big clue is uh, is right here. <laughs> it's the presence of all these corroborating New Testament passages where you observe the principle is a valid, legitimate, ecclesiastical church application. And once you lock in on that, then you go, okay, I understand now and I can take similar 
passages for Israel or even for the Gentiles and bring it to our application for uh, for what we're doing. So that's the answer there. This message distinguishes between anonymity and secrecy. Important to make that distinction. At least uh, you want to understand it. Um, sometimes maybe it's not always as clear when you're observing somebody else. But make sure it's clear when you're the one doing it. Make sure that your heart attitude is where it needs to be. That you are indeed legitimately pursuing the anonymity for the sake of Jesus Christ. You, you want your things to be done in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will repay. You want your things to be done in secret so that you don't diminish any of the glory that, that rightly belongs to Jesus Christ. Alright, that's the proper application of anonymity. There is a place for that. Uh, abundantly, there are many places for that. And, and uh, oftentimes, whether it's a, a financial offering or maybe it's a, it's a work of service or maybe it's just a, a ministry of uh, encouragement or something, um, you, uh, you send a gift or you, anything, but you don't want the personality to be the issue. You don't want yourself to be the issue. And so you work it anonymously. You, you uh, handle things through the, uh, through the local church. You handle things through the deacons so that uh, the, the deacons can be your, uh, your screen, as it were. You know, the treasurer knows who you are, but he's pretty good at keeping secrets, all right? And so uh, he... He uh, provides for that mechanism whereby then a gift can come uh, anonymously and uh, the recipient, all the recipient knows is that it's, uh, it's the saints at Austin Bible Church that's making provision, see. And our treasurer is trained to resist all forms of torture and any other uh, methods to try to get information out of him. He's not going to tell. But see, the anonymity, what we're illustrating is the proper realm of anonymity whereby the the the, the uh, attitude is to promote the maximum glory for Jesus Christ so that Christ receives the credit and the glory the thanksgiving and the praise the wrong way though is to pursue uh not anonymity but actual uh, nefarious secrecy that's where you're deliberately think, keeping things unknown because uh were they to become known you would be uh, shameful. You would be exposed because what you're really covering is not the glory for Jesus Christ. You're covering your own carnality. You're covering your own guilt and things there. And that's the the essence of hypocrisy. When inside you're these white, you're these uh, filthy tombs full of dead men's bones, and yet, boy, from the outside you're polished, gleaming white and whitewashed. Everything looks beautiful, and people think, goodness gracious, what a what a wonderful Christian. They love the Lord. They're doing all this stuff. See. That's the leaven of hypocrisy that Jesus is warning about here. So uh, it, it may seem um, it may seem a little blurry. You say, "Well, where's the line?" Or how do I know? Um, you know, there's something somebody's doing, and I'm not really sure. Is it is it anonymity for the glory of Christ, or is it secrecy for something else he's got going on? It, well, love believes all things. So walk in the light and trust that uh, that the person you're looking at is indeed uh, walking in the light as well. And if not, the Lord will deal with them. All right, the Lord will deal with them. That's when with other people. As far as it depends on you, though, keep your own heart attitude where it needs to be. There shouldn't be any uh, blurry lines or fuzziness or confusion in your mind about what you're doing. That ought to be that ought to be crystal clear. Anyway, if you want more on that, uh, the ministry when he sends out the 12 
in uh, Matthew chapter 10. We'll give you more information in the notes we gave you in Galilean Ministry episode 34. has some principles on that there as well. Hypocritical cover-ups will be apocalyptic. As we look, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. For something to be revealed, it's apocalyptic. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what I can. I tried it with the teenagers Sunday night. I tried it with you last week. I'm trying it again this morning. I am on a one-person personal crusade to reclaim the term apocalyptic. I love the term apocalyptic. And it bugs me like I can't begin to tell you. It's like fire ants in a tent. It bugs me to think of what the world has done with apocalyptic. With apocalypse. And they're using apocalypse like it's the end of the world. Apocalypse is like nuclear destruction of planet Earth. Or apocalypse is some kind of Mad Max movie or something. Apocalypse is a revelation. Apo, calupto, apo, the uncovering, the unveiling. And it's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing because it's our Savior that's being unveiled. He's being revealed to the world. He's been at the Father's right hand in these last 2,000 years. And Jesus Christ is going to be unveiled to the world. It's going to be a beautiful thing. From our standpoint, from their standpoint, maybe I understand why they're so terrified. All right? Because believe me, if to, the, to the lost of this world, it's going to be worse than Mad Max. Okay? It's going to be worse than the Hollywood uh, ultimate global destruction scenario. They're going to be cast into, the, into hell. To wait judgment at the, at the great white throne judgment. So I'm trying to reclaim the term apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is revelatory. It is a revelation. It is an unveiling. It is a revealing. Think about the, think about the, the, um, the beauties. I tried to explain this to the teenagers and the girls just kind of giggled and the, the boys weren't impressed. But the, the, um, the, the precious, uh, beauty of the of the the veil the wedding veil of a bride and and she's walking down the aisle and she's there to be wed to this man and the the vows are taken and they're brought together as one man and one woman and then the veil is lifted so that he can kiss his bride and and they they're one man and one woman think about the beauty and the glory of the unveiling of the bride and how special that is for her how special that is for the groom see again the Teenagers didn't do so well with that, I don't think. The girls giggled, like I said, and the boys, not their realm yet, all right? But that's, that's why I'm trying to reclaim apocalyptic, to reveal, to unveil, to unfold. It's not a thing of terror to be in dread of. It's a thing of beauty to rejoice over and to anticipate, oh, that it were today. And so these hypocritical cover-ups... If that's what you're engaged in, then beware. It will be unveiled. It will be exposed. The fire, if it's not exposed in time, it'll be exposed in eternity when the fire hits it at the judgment seat of Christ. And what everybody else was dazzled and go, oh, look what they did and oh, this and that. And then at the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to see the bonfire. They're going to see the wood, hay, and stubble and the little ashes remain behind when the fire reveals it for what it is. It was phony. It was hypocritical. And it has no place in glory, and Christ won't let it into glory. The fire will consume it at the, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. That's our judgment. Uh, technically speaking, since um, 
this is a message he was giving to Israel, then uh, it would have application for them in uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, the wilderness judgment of Israel. Believing Jews from the Old Testament will not stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They will stand at the wilderness judgment of Israel at the uh, second advent of Jesus Christ. But it's going to be exposed as wood, hand, stubble. Likewise, hidden faithfulness will be made known. Just like the hypocrisy won't stay hidden forever, neither will the anonymous heroes, the invisible heroes, the things you've done in secret, the Father who sees in secret will repay, and ultimately speaking, part of that repayment will be the proclamation for the glory of Jesus Christ. And they will be known. The fire will strike those deeds and good uh, gold, silver, and precious stones will be purified and will remain forever as eternal testimony to the glory of Jesus Christ. God the Father sees in secret and he will repay. Notice um, the, the cover-ups will be revealed. And then the second part of verse 2, the hidden, there is nothing hidden that will not be known. In other words, the hidden will be Known. It will be broadcast. It will be. But you don't have to do it yourself. See, the hypocrite will do that. He'll do the self-publishing. He'll blow the trumpet. He'll wave his arms. He'll paint a great big sign. Don't have to do that. Do what you do. Hidden away for the glory of Jesus Christ. The publication of which will come in glory when the when the fire strikes it and it's preserved, uh, purified as gold, silver and precious stones, it will be made known. And we're going to see some rewarded believers are going to be filthy rich like you wouldn't believe. And they're going to be they're going to be totally anonymous. We're going to say, who's that? Oh, my goodness. Who's that rewarded believer? I never even heard of him. No, you didn't. You never heard of him. Not on this earth. They're not many mighty, not many famous. They were the invisible heroes of the church age. The faithful prayer warriors, the faithful behind the scenes faith workers. And so we have the uh, the second side of the coin there. Likewise, even our words. Even our words, whatever you have said in the dark, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms. And I think here in verse 3, we have the same kind of division or dichotomy that we had in verse 2. Because you had both the cover-ups and the hidden items that were to be revealed and made known in verse 2. You could divide that verse in half, and I think you can divide verse 3 in half. Because there's the things said in the dark, and there are the things whispered in the inner rooms. So again, verse 3 can be split in half. The things spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. The things whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetop. And again, two halves of the verse, and we can, uh, we can understand the two sides of the story. Things that are uh, whispered for the right reasons and things that are whispered for the wrong reasons. If you have something to whisper to somebody, why are you whispering it to them? Is it because you're a snake and you're trying to pass along a juicy bit of gossip? Is that why you're whispering? Or are you whispering in a legitimate mind, uh, mindset, in a legitimate application of grace and mercy as a quiet word, the still small voice, as it were, from the Lord, the quiet word, the one-on-one word, you want the one-on-one whispering to take place so that when he hears you, you have won your brother. And it doesn't have to go to the two and three step. And it doesn't have to go to the tell it to the whole church step. 
and the discipline doesn't have to go to the whole uh, last resort step of of uh, removal from the assembly. You know what I'm saying? That one-on-one step. You go to your brother one-on-one. And quietly, privately, in your inner room, or whispering in the inner room, as it says here, could be in a positive way. See, in both of these verses, you want to look at it from the negative side, you want to look at it from the positive side. And whichever way it is, it will show itself for what it is, um, ultimately speaking. The judgment seat of Christ exposes them as gold, silver, and precious stones. These private testimonies for Christ. Private testimonies for Christ. You know, just a quiet little word when a, when a believer comes alongside and offers a, a tiny little word of encouragement. And who in the world saw that? The, the believer who spoke it and the believer who heard it? Is that it? The angels in heaven were observing. The Father who sees in secret was observing. And ultimately, that will be treasure exposed and on display for all eternity. Trumpeted from the rooftops. Proclaimed upon the housetops, we're told. And we'll be able to see, the, the, as I keep saying, those invisible heroes of the church age. They weren't famous in time. No one had any clue. See, and uh, that's why I'm pretty convinced, firmly convinced, uh, pastors are going to be at the back of the bus when it comes to the to the to the reward because they are they're too up front here on earth. Everything's too visible. But the last shall be first. The secret things will be the rewarded things and the and the different things there. And you think, well, you know, three thousand four hundred and thirty one Bible classes. What's that? compared to 133,000 encouraging words that some folks have given without ever having a, uh, a testimony or a public acknowledgement of their faithful testimony all these years. All right, well, let's get on then to emphasis number two, the true fear. Verses four and five, emphasis number two is true fear. This is something the Pharisees are lacking. Had they exhibited true fear, it would have uh, hindered their hypocrisy. True fear, the fear of the Lord, would have prevented the hypocrisy. See, the hypocrite has no fear of the Lord. That's why he can fully engage in his hypocrisy. He uh, does not either denies his accountability or has successfully deluded himself into not thinking about it. And so he learns to live with his own hypocrisy and then eventually learns to thrive, learns to enjoy his own hypocrisy. Because the fiction is so enjoyable to him, the nature of it. Anyway, true fear in verses 4 and 5. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. You see, if all they can do is take your physical life, that's really no big deal. Because that's uh, that's a temporary deal anyway. That's uh, that's a... um, that thing is just passing away even as we speak. It's fleeting. We think it's a long time, but on a cosmic scale of things, how long is it? Right? Think about these fruit flies that live 72 hours. Right? These ridiculous little fruit flies. or some that live less than 24 hours. Okay? I'm, I'm talking that's their total lifespan. They, they're, they're born. They mature within about four hours. They're mating about two hours after that. And then they're dead after, you know, 12 more hours beyond that. See? <laughs> and how are we any different? You know? So here's a 24-hour fruit fly, and let's say, uh, you know, you smash him after six hours. And you think, oh, terrible. He was so young. You know? 
he had his he had the the last 18 hours of life right in front of him still and he was so young <laughs> how are we any different with 80 years or 100 years or whatever it ends up being if all they can do is take your physical life on in the big picture well, that's no big deal True fear. So I say to you, my friends, and interestingly enough, my friends, we're going to see more and more of this language of friendship as he approaches the cross. It'll become a significant doctrinal development when he, uh, in the Gospel of John, when he says, I'm no longer referring to you as servants or as slaves, but as friends. And he introduces their new privilege that they have as his friends to go to his father and to receive the the guarantee of their prayers uh, because of their Friendship status with Jesus Christ. So this is a theme. Just keep your eye on it. We're going to see more and more of this as the cross approaches. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid. So this is a prohibition against the wrong kind of fear. Again, just like we've seen in so many other areas, there's a wrong kind and a right kind. The wrong kind of fear is being scared for the wrong reasons with no excuse. Because the, the, the sinful kind of fear is, is really a faith deficiency. The sinful kind of fear is an insult to the glory of God the Father who's promised to take care of you. And so the sinful kind of fear is, in fact, disobedience and sinful. So um, when, you know, if you want to think of it as a sin of omission or what have you, when you're commanded to be anxious for not one thing and then you go around afraid of all this stuff, well, then you're disobedient. It's a sin of omission. It's a, it's a disobedience to when he tells you to stop being afraid. So uh, that's the wrong kind of fear, and that one's commanded to have nothing to do with it. Put an end to it. Stop being afraid. Like that stop it uh, video of the, the Bob Newhart video on stop it. Just stop it. But the other kind of fear you're, is just the opposite. You're actually ordered to develop that kind of fear, the fear of the Lord. The godly reverence and the awe and reverence before the majesty of the Lord our God. That is a reverence. We're commanded to not only have it, but to nurture it, to build it, to increase in that fear. And the problem is, I think, that comes in is that gets neglected. The love grows cold. The fear diminishes. And when you lose your the proper fear, then you start entertaining these hypocrisy ideas and the carnality and all the other foolishness that believers get caught up in. So what do we see? The corollary then, uh, quit being afraid of the physical dangers. Those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Okay, you must be in a fear orientation and it's an order. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. In other words, and we'll develop this. In other words, this is God. This is the Father. And then ultimately the Son, once, once the Father hands all judgment to the Son. Who has the keys of heaven and hell? After the Father hands all judgment to the Son, Jesus Christ does. Okay? And fear the one who has authority to cast into hell. Fear him. Don't ever lose your fear of the Lord. And we're going to discuss the distinction between a fear of hell which we shouldn't have anymore because we're regenerate, we're saved, where that's not our destiny. But the fear of the one who could cast us into hell, we shouldn't lose that. Even once we're beyond the point where hell itself is no longer a possibility. Does that make sense? 
I'll explain it in a little bit. We'll talk about it here in the subpoints. I think the um, the true fear here is the one that we want to evaluate. All right, so this is true fear. The um, subpoint A then. Jesus addresses this message to his philoi, to his friends. This comes from phileo love, philos love, friendship or rapport love. I think all too often we, um, I think philos gets minimized, to be honest. Uh, our style of teaching tends to stress the agape, and, and we need to stress the agape. Agape, God is agape, God is not philos, God is agape, God is love. Uh, and yet, while we're magnifying agape and making sure that we're dwelling in agape, we don't want to do so at the expense of philos. We're supposed to at the same time, as well as our agape, be developing the philos. Because the philos love is the fellowship love, the rapport love. God saved us, not just so that we could have eternal life, but having eternal life, we can engage in the eternal fellowship with Him and with His Son. And that's the rapport love, the philos love. And we are philoi. What a wonderful thing to be philoi. You realize in the Old Testament, uh, the statements of the friends of God are pretty, pretty uh, slim. Abraham was called the friend of God. And then beyond that, um, we're told David was a man after God's own heart. I think that was a similar idiom to being a friend of God because of the orientation of heart to friendship. But the, the list is pretty short, don't you think? For those that could claim friendship status with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Think about it. Was your average Jewish believer in the Old Testament, did he have capacity, doctrinal capacity, within his stewardship, within his revealed Scripture, to be a friend. I think very few did. Very few did. Abraham, David, um, the Psalm, Psalm 119 psalmist. Very few. I think all too many of them, though, were, were um, limited by the shadow doctrines, by the, the stewardship they were under. The external rituals that, uh, where they never got beyond the externals to understand what the heavenly realities behind them even were. See, very few. Um, Joshua, but very few. All right. And yet contrast that with us because we aren't trapped in the, the uh, externals and the rituals and the shadows that are pointing ahead of something future. We are living in the reality. We have a priesthood that functions in the heavenly places right now. And how much better for us to operate in the realms of philos friendship with God. Because positionally, that's what we are anyway. So it's a thing to consider. So he tells them not to be afraid of temporal affliction. Anything in time. Anything in time is not worth getting scared over. Okay? Not worth getting scared over. Now, oh, I guess I can illustrate that in a, in a moment. I mean, there are actual human instinctive reaction to stimulus that, you know, if, if, uh, if a gunshot goes off behind you and you jump, you know, and then you're looking around and, you know, you're not out of fellowship. You don't have to confess that and say, oh, you know, Father, I was scared. I, you know, I was told to not be anxious for anything. And the gunshot went off right behind you. Of course you were scared. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's try to put these uh, imperatives and prohibitions into the right perspective and so forth. The, um, and 
embrace what not only does the scripture refer to in terms of courage, but what even non-biblical military, uh, uh, great men of military have defined as definitions of courage. When God told uh, uh, Joshua to be courageous, to not be afraid, the uh, the imperatives that happen there in Deuteronomy and in in Joshua and in, in the Psalms, we can we can glean from these, and we can learn what what courage is. It's not the absence of fear, but it's in the trust in the Lord God despite the fear. See, Jesus Christ had to say, "Not my will, but Thine be done." In, in just pure humanity terminology, He did not want to go to the cross, and yet He trusted in His Father. That he was where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to be doing. And just because you and I know with hindsight that he was victorious on the cross, don't think for a minute that he had access to omniscience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did he know? Did he know that on the next day when he went to the cross that he would be victorious? I believe he anticipated it. I believe he intended it. I believe he was firmly trusting in his father so that he would be victorious. But without tapping into omniscience, how could he know ahead of time? He knew his purpose. He knew his expectations. And he went forward in obedience. I'm just talking about his humanity now. I'm just talking about his obedience and his trust and dependence on God the Father. But we also know that at the same time, he was, if you don't want to use the word scared, then use the word um, concerned. He had a legitimate, sanctified, spiritual concern because he went to Peter, James, and John and said, pray that you do not enter into temptation. He warned them. I, I, I believe the battles he was fighting, the metal attitude battles he was fighting in that garden were, were powerful. We can't even imagine. And he did not know what the next 24 hours were going to do. He knew what it was planned for. He knew what he was expecting. But he didn't know the result until he lived the experience. So, when it comes to temporal affliction, we're not to be afraid. In other words, don't dwell on the fear. If you identify the, uh, uh, the human instinctive fear in uh, human situations, then r- take that captive. Immediately take that captive. Put it in perspective with the divine viewpoint, as this passage here does. Put it in perspective with the divine viewpoint. Give, offer that fear up as a sweet-smelling savor. Ask the Father to deal with it what He wants to deal with it. But ask Him to provide for you and your work assignment to continue on in spite of the fear. Don't dwell on the fear. See, this is, becomes the issue. It's like the temptation. The temptation itself is not carnality. If, uh, if you're faced with a, a fear temptation... It's not, it's not carnality until you start playing with it, toying about it, figuring out, well, you know, how's it going to work? Or once you start dwelling on it, then you've, you've crossed that line into sin. The lust temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. Not until you make the mental decision to start acting upon the idea. You start considering the idea. You start thinking, yeah, that could work. Hmm, how do I get away with that? That'd probably be kind of fun. Let's see. And the moment you start dwelling on it as a possibility, you cross the mental attitude line. You just turn that temptation into a sin. And we've taught that before. We'll imagine we'll teach it again.
All right, so he tells them not to be afraid of temporal affliction. If persecution is a matter of physical life or death, then it's not truly critical. I love it when someone grabs you and says, oh, this is important. Pay attention, pay attention. This is important. What do you mean it's important? It's a matter of life and death. Oh, is that all? But think about it. In, the, in our, just in our idiom, in our, in our language, if somebody tells you it's a matter of life and death, isn't that their way of saying it is of the utmost importance? There's nothing more important than this? Of course. And to the cosmos way of thinking, that's the pinnacle. There's nothing more important. It's a matter of life and death. All right? And this verse says, you know what? That's no big deal. Here's what you really need to be in fear of. You need to fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Authority to cast into hell. Understand that we are commanded to maintain that fear. You say, well, I'm not afraid of that anymore. I'm, I'm delivered from hell. I, I have eternal life. My destiny is heaven. Don't confuse your destiny with his authority. He did not relinquish his authority when he chose in grace to forgive your sentence. To forgive my sentence. Because I'm, I'm a sinner. And where do I belong? Yes, grace has saved me, and yes, grace has given me a new destiny and a new... I'm no longer sentenced to hell. But does he not still have the authority to cast me there? Uh, I didn't twist his arm to make him elect me. I didn't twist his arm to make him give his son in my place. And I didn't force him to accept his son's sacrifice on my behalf. God has chosen the mechanism and means of redemption. And since he sovereignly made those decisions, it still rests in his sovereignty. And simply because I'm born again, let me say this, just because I'm born again does not change the fact that God still has the authority to send me to hell. Not fun to think about, is it? But his authority is undiminished. Simply because he chooses to be merciful and he chooses to manifest grace, that doesn't diminish his authority. And it certainly doesn't diminish the reverence he's entitled to. I think that's what happens sometimes. We get too familiar. We get too complacent. We get too we, we lose that edge of the reverence. He's not entitled to any less reverence than he was before we were saved. Even more. Fear and trembling. True fear is the godly reverence, the fear of the Lord, the godly reverence. Yerath. If you don't learn any other Hebrew words, learn yara, learn yerath as a noun. Yara is a verb. Yerath. Y I R apostrophe A T H. Yerath. I didn't uh, write the Strong's number down. I can get that for you in a little bit. Y-I-R apostrophe A-T-H year aft. You may only learn, you probably can learn a couple dozen Greek words that you'll never forget for the rest of your life. Um, maybe you'll only learn six or eight Greek, uh, Hebrew words that you'll never forget for the rest of your life. This ought to be one. The fear of the Lord. Y-I-R, it's right up here on the screen, Y-I-R apostrophe A-T-H. 
And the apostrophe, if you really want to care, the apostrophe is the one that curves to the right. Not the one that curves to the left, but the one that curves to the right. Like a close quote apostrophe. And that represents your Aleph right there. Pronunciation value on the Aleph is not pronounced, but you have to close your throat. It's like the best way to understand it is the H in the word honest. It's silent, but you don't just work your way straight into an honest without closing your throat first. Honest requires that closure of the throat. Okay, everybody say with me, honest, honest. Do it? Okay. So when you close your throat there for... Go ahead and close your throat and don't say the honest. Just go honest, okay? Close your throat back there. That's your letter Aleph right there. So you're off. Got that throat closure in the middle. Okay. You didn't know you were going to get Hebrew pronunciation classes in morning either, see? And no extra charge. Isn't that great? But this godly reverence. And there's different objects. Sometimes it's called the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. Sometimes it's called the fear of Elohim, the fear of God. Sometimes it's called the fear of Shaddai. But it's the same year af every single time. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Elohim, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of Jehovah, the fear of Shaddai. And when you start talking about El Shaddai, you start talking about the Almighty. You better be trembling in fear. Because uh, he's Shaddai and we are puny. <laughs> We're less than fruit flies. Okay? I mean, who do the fruit flies pick on? I mean, we pick on the fruit flies. Who do they pick on? Ooh, yeah. Is there a realm of creation even more pathetic than fruit flies? Okay. So the godly reverence, the Yerath. Uh, you've got the expression, the Yerath Elohim, the fear of God, the Yerath Shaddai, the fear of the Almighty, the Yerath Yehovah, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. Some people are really buggy about how they pronounce Yahweh. You know, Luke 12, 5 here, fear the one who after he has killed uh, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And hundreds of hundreds of fear of the Lord passages from the Old Testament. Now, I think my favorite, though, the easiest to remember is Proverbs 1, 7. There's several of these in Proverbs. Probably the dominant expression in Proverbs. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. My childhood, my pastor wrote a book on Proverbs and he used this as his key verse. And wisdom is the principal thing. We even have a copy over here in the church library. But the Yerath Yahweh, the Yerath godly reverence, the trembling as a creature to the Creator. He's entitled to it. We cannot lose that perspective. The first, the first moment we begin to lose that perspective, we're departing from our humility to receive the Word implanted. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if that fear is damaged, how well are your Bible studies going to go? How well is your acceptance of the Word of God going to go? You can accumulate knowledge, but it's not going to be with the humility that truly embraces that knowledge and turns the knowledge into love. You end up with the knowledge that puffs up rather than the love that edifies. And look uh, what the opposite is at the end of verse 7 here. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, what happens if you don't adopt the fear of the Lord? You're a fool. You're a fool. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
despising, reckoning as worth zero, reckoning as worthless, reckoning as not worth as much as your own selfish pursuits. And when your fear diminishes, your reverence for the value of God's word diminishes. When your fear increases, your reverence for the value of God's word increases because you're just filled with awe and wonder and and grace, amazement that the sovereign God of the universe would take his time talking to you. And you just go, wow, why, why, why would he talk to me? You know, why would he give me the time of day? But he does. He tells me his plan. He tells me his heart. He lays out his designs. He he unfolds his glories for the glory of his son. And he invites me to be a partaker of these things. And he lays it out there volitionally so that I can learn it, so that I can live it. Wow. As your fear increases, your appreciation for the value of his word increases. And it keeps you from becoming the fool that's described there in the second part. Now, I said this before, but here it is in a point. point Sub-point one now. Although believers no longer fear being cast into hell. I hope none of you here today are afraid of hell. Because you're saved by grace. You're not going to hell. You'll never see it. You won't be there. In fact, you're not even going to be... You'll never even go to the... You remember in the Old Testament... Believers who died went to Abraham's bosom and they could look across the chasm, the great gulf there, and they could see hell, right? They could see it from here, from there. And the old army joke that, well, we're not in hell, but we can see it from here. Okay. That was true for the people in Abraham's bosom. They were being comforted across the great chasm and they could see the torments going on. They could even, they, they were talking back and forth, Abraham talking to the rich man. Begging, you know, send Lazarus over here to dip my tongue and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. That's not the situation anymore. Captivity has been led captive. Abraham's bosom, paradise, is now in the third heaven. When he told the repentant thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, that was the Abraham's bosom compartment across the gulf from torments. But today, where's paradise? In the third heaven. Paul said he was caught up to paradise into the third heaven. We're going to learn that in 2 Corinthians. Paradise got moved. What a delight. And so you're not going to ever go to hell and you're not going to ever see hell. The closest you and I will ever get is when we are seated with Christ and he is sitting for judgment at the great white throne and death and Hades are delivered up to stand accountable at the great white throne judgment. We won't actually see hell, but we'll see the residents of hell disgorged to uh, stand at the at the great white throne. So we no longer fear being cast into hell. However, we must never lose our fear of the one with authority with authority to do so. We no longer fear being cast into hell, but God still maintains the authority to do so. We must never lose our fear. That's the whole point here in verse 5. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29 is another application of this, which allows me to take this warning out of a church, out of a dispensation of Israel uh, development when it was first spoken and bring it into a church age application because we have corroborating church age scripture that substantiates the secondary application. 
a matter of fact, everything Israel ever learned about the fear of the Lord gets magnified for us in the church. Absolutely magnified. Because they were serving shadows, we serve the reality. And so the, um, the consequences are that much more severe. It even backs up. I'm headed for Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29, but there is a um, context for this that goes back to verse 18. And even beyond that, the, um, the warnings that precede it about our application, how we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and run with endurance this race that's set before us. How that we're to pursue peace with all men in verse 14 and how we're to see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. No one. Notice that? No one. If you think that, oh, well, that would never happen to me. Then just put a little mark in there, right where it says no one, and right down there, that means you. Okay? No one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. So you're no longer falling short of the grace of God in terms of your salvation, but you're falling short of the grace of God in terms of your edification and victory at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 18, 4, by way of explanation, let me spell this out for you now. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was like that which those who heard, begged that no further word be spoken to them. See, this is the experience of Israel at Mount Sinai. For they could not even bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Think how awesome, and you know Hollywood does what it can to try to replicate that in the movies, but I don't think they can even come close. And yet, what was that? That was an earthly mountain intersecting divine glory for a moment we're coming to something much more glorious much more uh, majestic much more fearful you have come to mount zion to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem to myriads of angels any one of which could squash our country tomorrow and there's myriads of them in the presence of god to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. <laughs> I mean, if, if all the rest of that doesn't humble you, if, if verse 22 doesn't do it and verse 23 doesn't do it, in verse 24 you come face to face with the one who shed his blood. The sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's where we are. That's where we are. We are in the presence of our Savior who died so that we can live. How then shall we live? And so the application comes in. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. We are there. We are in His presence. He's communicating. He that has an ear, let him hear. Do not refuse Him who is speaking. 
For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, I mean, if, a, if an animal would drop dead for touching Mount Sinai, what should we expect? We're somewhere much more severe than Mount Sinai in 1446 B.C. If those did not escape when they refused him who was warning them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Who turn away. If you turn away from the heavenly mountain. See, ours is that that mountain was shaking. Our mountain cannot shake. Since we have a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. In other words, respond. Nothing we do deserves what we have. Everything we do is in gratitude response to what He gave us anyway. Even though we didn't deserve a bit of it. Since we've received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. There it is. Reverence and awe. That's our commandment. That's our expectation. This is a church age passage which tells me we can go back to this Luke passage given to Israel and bring it to our application as well. He is worthy. He is the one that has authority to cast us into hell. And we better tremble in His presence. Offering to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For, by way of explanation, understand this. Our God is... You see what He is? Does it... I talk about, you know, things that bug you. A whole segment of Christianity that thinks God is their... Their buddy, their teddy bear, their little, uh, you know, cuddle buddy, build a bear, whatever. Our God is a consuming fire. Yes, we have fellowship with Him. Yes, we have intimacy with Him. Yes, we should be the friend of God and we develop in our Christ-like maturity into a friendship intimacy, but it never, ever comes at the expense of reverence and fear and trembling. If we abandon the fear of the Lord, we'll never get to that intimacy He wants us to have with Him. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So we no longer fear being cast into hell. We must never lose our fear of the one with the authority to do so. The one with the authority to do so. The fear of the Lord was a dominant theme for Israel and their stewardship, but it also has a tremendous emphasis for the church and our stewardship as well. Beyond what we just read in Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29, we've got this other string of passages. And I... I can't let you go without giving you this point, without giving you these verses, even though we're, uh, we're eight seconds away from the top of the hour. 2 Corinthians 5.11 and chapter 7, verse 1. Two passages in 2 Corinthians 5.11 and 2.1. Philippians 2.2, Ephesians 5.21. Fear of the Lord passages. And fear of the Lord passages, we better today, because tomorrow's too late, today we better get a handle on our fear of the Lord. Sometimes the worst Bible class is the one right before a pastor's trip. 
He keeps you along. He's going to try to get it all squeezed in. Second Corinthians, if I can just grab these really quickly. Second Corinthians 5.11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade man. What do you have in Second Corinthians 5? It's your ambassadorship. It's your ministry of reconciliation. It's your obligation to give the gospel to this lost and dying world. You know what a big motivator is for that? The fear of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. When I encounter a believer that's got no passion to give the gospel, you know what I've just encountered? A believer doesn't have any fear of the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. Over to chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. How? In the fear of God. The fear of God. If you lose your fear of God, you'll never perfect holiness. Philippians 2.2. 2. Philippians 2 is the great humility passage, the kenosis of our Savior. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction and compassion, I'm sorry, affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. How does a church develop unity? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It's a great verse, but the verse I'm headed for is verse 12. <laughs> typo on the screen so then my beloved just as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation how many times do we quote that work out your own salvation finish the verse with fear and trembling believers who lose their fear of the lord never finish working out their own salvation they never achieve the salvation works that Ephesians tells us that they were saved unto good works, which were prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. That requires the fear of the Lord. So that should be Philippians 2.12. Got to fix my typo. Ephesians 5.21. Ephesians 5.21. Yeah, husbands love Ephesians 5. It makes their wives submit. Preach it. Yeah, there's a wife submission verse there. In verse 22. But uh, I said, look at verse 21, didn't I? How about that? A verse that comes before verse 22. Which is a reciprocal subjection. And a part of the walk of wisdom, the careful walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Remember, if you abandon the fear of the Lord, you're a fool. We saw that in Proverbs 1. Do not get drunk with wine, that's dissipation. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another. How in the world are you going to do that? In the fear of Christ. In the fear of Christ. If you fear Christ, um, you'll be subject to one another. He motivates that. When you see your fellow brother, you see Christ. And your fear of Christ, you're subject to your fellow brother. His needs are more important than yours. The full application of the ministry of the church to one another. Well, 
I owe you four minutes. I'll make it up to you next week. How about that? The week after and the week after. Got a three-week break. We'll come back in April. First Wednesday of April. April 1st? You're not fooling me, are you? April 1st. April 1st. That'll be our next class day. How about that? Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. We thank you for your majesty, for your glory. And Father, we're asking if that you would evaluate our attitudes, our hearts, our minds. You search the hearts and the minds, Father. We're, we're asking for you to do that. Search us. Reveal the uh, areas and circumstances in which our, uh, our fear is not what it needs to be. If it's deficient, work in it, Father. Develop it. Increase it. Uh, produce in us that reverence which our Savior had in your presence. And, uh, Father, motivate us to be examples of, of your Son to this lost and dying world. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.